Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, hosted by Paul Rodriguez and Tim Price. In this weekly show, Paul and Tim will bring you the latest updates and insights on the world of finance and investing, as well as in-depth interviews with industry experts. On today's episode, we're excited to be joined by Dominic Frisby. Dominic is an author, financial journalist and comedian with over 20 years of experience in the industry. He'll be sharing his expertise and unique perspective on the current state of the markets, from stocks and bonds to cryptocurrencies and commodities. There's no topic that Dominic can't handle. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Dominic. Thank you very much. Uh, there's plenty of topics that I can't handle. Well, uh, well, the, fu- the funny <laughs> can, thing about I this make is stuff up, but I, uh, but I'm not necessarily speaking with any insight. Oh no, that's that's absolutely not true. Well, the funny thing about this is, uh, you probably wondered why I was reading this intro. It was actually written by ChatGTP. <laughs> Which is quite amazing. I just said, write an intro for the State of the Markets podcast with Dominic Frisby as a guest. And it, it was like, whoa, how did you know all of this stuff? So he's, he's part, Chat GDP has passed this first test with flying colours, hasn't he? <laughs> well, because I do lots of different things, I've always struggled to write biogs for myself. And mm. uh, so the biog that is now on my site was also written by Chat GBT. And uh, it's just the most incredible. Like, for example, you know, it can write songs. Yes. So you can go, somebody got it to go write a song about going down the pub in the style of Dominic Frisbee and include a verse about Bitcoin uh, and another verse about Weatherspoons or something like, I oh, know, another verse about pigs. And it wrote this song. Wow. Was that and any good? It's okay. <laughs> Not as good as the original, obviously. Well, and, and then, but here's the thing. Um, I've been trying to write this song, which is, you know, all those awful office uh, expressions like reach out and yes. dynamic and touch and base, touch base and take all this that. offline. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Take this offline. That's so bad. Um, and uh, so I've been trying to write a love song in this, but only using those kind of words. And so I've been like researching all those kind of words for ages. And and I sort of have got the list of words has got too long and I've just overwhelmed my brain. And um, so I had to sort of, you know, take a few days off. And because there's actually a dictionary, there's an online dictionary of awful office phrases and there's hundreds of them in there and they're glorious. Um, so I just said to chat GBT, write me a song using words from this dictionary uh, write me a love song uh using only words from this dictionary or something like that i can't remember what the instruction was and literally by reply it didn't even have to think about it it was just by reply a perfectly passable song came back and it had a four or five really funny lyrics that made me laugh out loud i mean so genuinely for, funny for the I, benefit for the benefit of anybody, which includes myself, that doesn't know the origin story of, of Chat GTP, what, who, 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 who's, whose project is it? Well, it's what it's. It belongs to a thing called OpenAI, Open yeah. Artificial in, Intelligence, and this is where Tim, you're going to despair and attack me and everything else. But OpenAI's backers include, you know, Elon Musk and all the all the sort of Silicon Valley. Um, glitterati, yeah. but Microsoft, your favourite company, made a one billion dollar investment. Oh, no. in oh, no. So it's, it's got the taint of Bill Gates on it already. Right, so, 
but it, it's just extraordinary. I've never known. I mean, my son, it was my son who put me onto it. He came back from university and said, have you seen this thing? And they're all using it to write their essays and yeah. the essays are better. Yeah. Well, this rem- this reminds me of a, a research note I came across. It's probably 10 years ago now, easily, maybe longer, but it was basically a, a note that people had put together and it was a list of the, the jobs that were going to be most vulnerable to technology, uh, which is basically all of them. But it had a ranking of the ones that are most and least likely affected. And the ones that are at the top of the list that were deemed to be least likely affected or, or let's say would be the last to be affected by the rise of AI and robotism were one of them was priest and the other one was <laughs> they said they said something cagey like personal like lifestyle consultant but it basically as, as i read it was basically prostitute <laughs> okay. so so those were the, so for anyone looking for career advice the two the two things that apparently will be the last stand of humanity one will be let's say a religious or spiritual advisor and the other one will be a whore two ends of the spectrum well yes two ends of the spectrum but that's that's quite interesting because i i would I would challenge that a little bit, Tim, uh, in the sense that I think virtual reality sex is going to be a thing. Mm. Well, for uh, some of us, that's the kind of sex we've been having for the last 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's not it's not AI, but it's sort of in the same, you know, there's crossover. It's all, it's all in the imagination. Well, it's like meta, there's metaverse-type yeah. sex, isn't there, where you have um, certain certain appendages or certain uh, technologies attached to appendages and what have you without going into too much so it's detail. A family, it's a family show, Paul. Well, I'm, I'm not there. using anything. This this but. does remind me, I don't know if you've seen it, Dominic, but this uh, one of my favourite comedy shows of, of recent years is The Big Bang Theory. Yeah. And there's a, wonderful, there's a wonderful episode where Raj and Howard get their hands on this, like, it's, it's effectively, it's, it's what, what Paul's alluding to. It's a sort of a, it's a mouth with lips. And you, you sort of so you so you have one. It's a bit like at the, on the end of a microphone, and your one assumes your sort of partner, uh, sort of sexual partner, has one on the other end, wherever they are. And so you 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 French kiss this this lip 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 thing, and then your movements on the lips then trans- transfer over to theirs. So you, you see these two guys, and they're, they're, of course they're both blokes having this extraordinary, you know, passionate French kissing thing on a virtual sex machine, and it's. It's it's funny and and appalling in equal measure. It's very 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 funny though. The my friend, also comedy writer, said to me, we were talking about something or other the other day, and I said, "What does he do?" And he said, "Oh, well, he's a priest." But by priest, he didn't mean he he was talking. Have you heard of this thing of luxury beliefs? No. Okay, so it's it's. Um, there's an uh, American academic called Rob Henderson, who I think coined the term, but also Kristen Nemitz is. is oh, always, yeah, yeah. He's the IEA, is it? Yeah, the IEA. And he's always talking about them. And so, for example, a luxury belief might be something like, uh, you know, we should have open door immigration and everyone should be able to come here. It's like blank a blank check a blank check um, approach yeah, to the world. But but you're saying that from your rich house in Notting Hill that mm. is totally unaffected by sure, sure, sure. you don't use no, no, there's, no, there's no skin in the game exactly. And you know another one might be you know body positivity. You know you can be however you know whatever weight you like, and if you're really fat, we love you. 
mm. uh, all the same. And it's like, yeah, well, you're saying that, but you, you're then that person doesn't affect you because that person then goes and has a heart attack, and then ever that family has to deal with it. So there, uh, so a lot of those sort of lefty uh, things have, uh, would be luxury beliefs, and you you have these people on the left and right who you know they're arguing on twitter whatever you call them thought leaders or whatever um but you know some will be arguing for luxury beliefs or somebody else will be arguing for conservatism or somebody else will be arguing for libertarianism whatever the argument is but they are all in in this age of no religion they are all the new priests mm. and so that's what he meant when he said priest so my question to you is <laughs> How is AI going to affect modern priests? Discuss. Yeah, it's 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 an yeah. it's an interesting one. I mean, the what one thing I would say, one facet of the what I would describe as the Great Reset is, which I think is a real thing. I don't think it's it's just a conspiracy theory anymore. Um, is a concentrated attack on, in no particular order, you know, traditional family values traditional gender identity uh, and the church yeah so the church was already under attack you know before we started sort of bolting on this sort of like ai approach to let's say alternative religion um i just think that the world's in a, in a terrific mess right now there's also it a copyright is. issue isn't there dominic to think about i mean because there's also something called mid journey um which is an a have you heard of mid journey no Okay, so you, you can um, do a very similar thing to chat GTP, but you can do it with pictures. So yep. people are taking artistic, uh, artistic sort of um, cues from certain, obviously, artists and then generating new art that looks a bit like the original artist, but actually isn't. And it's, it's, um, it's brought up this question of copyright. And if I was to write a song in the style of Dominic Frisbee using chat, gpt um about bitcoin would it be my song or would it be really your song because i was going to ask exactly the same question so who retains the intellectual property of of, of this thing when it when, when you use it dominic well i don't know yeah it's, it's... And, and i mean you're opening up a whole other um pandora's box which is an interesting subject in itself there's there's two things one is if you're saying write a song in the style of so-and-so well, that so-and-so has obviously created his own style or her own style. So, you know, that in themselves, if, if you've created a style that other people are then parodying, then you should have met then to an extent you've made it. <laughs> so we don't need to worry that much about you. But even so, you know, there is the issue of, of copyright. Hmm. And then there's, there's the whole issue of, you know, where do ideas come from? Are they not just a product of the greater collective? And, or, or you, you, you know, so in medieval times, there wasn't this idea of individual ideas. They would all just be part of the collective. But they'd also be viewed as God-given, a God-given well, talent. Too. Well, well, legally, That's, legally, you can't... They always call them the muse to, to, to write for them, you know. You, you, you legally can't copyright an idea. So no. that that's that's one thing. So an idea for... A, I'm going to write a song, fine, um, about Bitcoin, fine. But in the style of, that, is, that should be your intellectual copyright because that is something that you've developed and is obviously unique to you. So if I copy that, then 
it's it is definitely a grey area. It's definitely, um, you know, it needs legal kind of um, control because technically I could create an album of songs that are based kind of on yours and and that i mean from our experience paul my my understanding is that the well actually probably from all of our shared experiences in 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 music and 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 song over the last few years the the issue comes down to there is a certain defense in relation to parody um but if 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 songs and or their lyrics bear more than a certain um overlap with the original then basically you're on you're on thin ice parody is okay um so you're allowed to do that. Otherwise, you're, you're effectively passing off someone else's material as your own. Yes. But I suppose there's also the element of actually singing it. And, you you know, obviously it wouldn't be you singing it, so it wouldn't be the same. But it, it's, still, it's, still a, it's still obviously an issue for artists. Yeah. Well, YouTube just treats everything defaults to the originator. Mm. So even if you parody or pastiche a song and you change the words or whatever, it just hands all the royalties back to the originator. Well, that, it shouldn't do that. That should be... No, it does. Oh, right. Okay. Do you, do you I think not if we, st- if we start, If we started a list of things that YouTube shouldn't do, it'd be a fairly long list. But where the Pandora's box that I was talking about is... I, I once presented a documentary all about this, art fraud. And a lot of fraudsters... So, for example, a lot of artists just start out copying people they like before they find their own voice so that's that's one thing but park that but a lot of fraud fraudsters um actually regard themselves as better than the the person that they're defrauding and there was a there was a a famous dutch artist called hans van meheren and he was operating in the early 20th century in holland and he became very bitter that his own stuff was being overlooked and critics were a bit snooty about his art and so on. And so, um, you know, and they sort of said he was second tier, but not top tier. And so he went off and um, he, I think, you know, he had a drink problem and all the rest of it. And he painted these paintings in the style of Vermeer, the great Dutch artist Vermeer, who had had like a 15 year period in the middle of his life uh, um, where he'd gone to Italy and all of his work had been lost. And he, this guy went down to um, Van Meher and went down to Italy and st- or I think maybe the south of France and sent one of these paintings back. And some Dutch critic um was going, oh my God, this is amazing. It's uh, from, it's definitely a Vermeer. It's from Van, uh, from Vermeer's uh, lost Italian period and so on and so forth. And so Van Meheren kept on painting these paintings in the style of Vermeer and selling them via a third party art dealer. And he got so rich, he became one of the biggest property owners in Amsterdam. <laughs> wow. And then, and he, saw, he sold them to the Nazis, didn't he? Because I saw yeah, the film yeah, over exactly. Christmas. That was this. This is this is the great thing: is one of his paintings, Goring bought, and it became like Goring was a rapacious art collector, and um, it was Goring's most treasured painting. And so all the other stuff um, he 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 shipped on a train when he knew the war was lost. He shipped on a train off to the country somewhere, 
um, to try and hide it. But this one painting, this Vermeer, he, he kept behind a brick wall and some American soldiers found it. And then the art dealer who'd sold it to Goring then got into trouble because he was told that, uh, you know, he was dealing with the Nazis. So the art dealer then shopped Van Meheren and Van Meheren said, oh, no, it's not a Vermeer. I painted it and I defrauded the Nazis. So he became then became a national hero in Holland because he he was the man who'd sold Goring, <laughs> ripped Goring off. And then but the Dutch art community and the Dutch authorities refused to believe that Van Meheren was was able to paint paintings that good. Oh, God. So he then had to go into court. And for a week he was in court painting a painting to prove that he was the author of Van of, of um, Vermeer's Lost Italian Period. So it's an incredible bit. And there's there's loads of. But just to return to the original premise of all of that, there are loads of. Um, fraudsters who regard themselves as technically technically better and more gifted than the person they are frauding well the, there's the skill the is person. incredible isn't it to, it's yeah. like you, you've got people who do um impressions and and uh yeah. actors who do impressions i mean it's it's just phenomenal really um and a lot of the time the motivation is revenge because they become these fraudsters because they've been overlooked and they're bitter about it the critics, the critics don't come out well of this, but then critics never do because they are the eunuchs in the harem. They are the priests. So, if, if you, the eunuchs too, yeah. Have you seen a, a series called Fake or Fortune? Um, no. Oh, it's brilliant. It's BBC. It's it's uh, about um, so it's got Fiona Bruce and I've forgotten the name of the guy who's in it, but um, they they basically have a member of the public who's got a piece of artwork that they believe is worth a fortune and they go to the trouble of trying to work out whether it's a fake or it's worth a fortune and it's it's absolutely fascinating if you, it's right down the street of what you've just spoken about um although that story is is you know fascinating but some of them are as good as that um and they just go to all this detail of trying to work out forensically um and find trying to find the provenance of these paintings and it's 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 really good. I mean, it doesn't sound it, but it really is interesting. Um, and you learn all about the artists as well. But, um, but yeah, so, but, but back to the, the, the main theme of the podcast, which should be the financial markets. So given that it's January and everybody's sort of making their predictions for the year, do you have any strong opinions about where the markets are going to go this year? And particularly, obviously everyone's wondering about Bitcoin. Well, I do have some predictions. I do have some thoughts, but I also think um, the landscape has changed. And what we've got used to over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, this the, the low rates environment has really benefited tech and growth and all that. And the landscape has changed. I'd take it just on a point of order, uh, Mr. Speaker, I'd take it, I'd take it back for something like 40 years. I'd say that the, the interest rate, the declining interest rate trend that began in the early 80s is the one that's now basically being put to the sword so anybody alive anybody with any experience of working in a dealing room for example uh, is not prepared mentally or psychologically for what we're now going to experience well i wouldn't disagree with that tim and I'm, i take it by your point of order there that you sort of agree with with what i just said sure no i was just expanding it over from 
10, 15 to 40. Actually, I'd go even further than that because this has been a presentation of ours now for the best part of a year. You probably have seen the chart, which is a history of interest rates going back to 3000 BC. Yeah. The Bank of England and others put together. We are talking about interest rates coming off their lowest levels in all of recorded history. So it's that big a deal. That yeah. big a step change, sea change in the order of the financial markets and the financial system. Yeah. So that's just going to make it, you know, and you look at what benefits from low interest rates, property, certain sorts of stocks. Spe- speculative interest generally. Yeah. And there isn't just going to be the same cheap capital flowing about looking for return. Um, so I like one thing I'm looking at quite extensively, and you know, I have a Substack um, that's quite popular. And I have a guy called John Wollstonecraft who writes on the Substack with me, and John's, you know, I I sort of look at interesting mining companies and so on because that's where I, what I know about. And John's much more sensible, and he looks at investment trusts and bonds and so on. But some of these high yielding investment trusts, um, which are invested in bonds. Uh, you know, sensible corporate bonds and stuff, you know, you're, you're looking at like 9, 10, 11% returns, uh, 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 dividend, annual dividends. Wow. And I just think that's really good. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the underlying price of the investment trust doesn't change, you know, changes by a few pennies, whatever, but you're getting 9, 10, 11%. And I just think, you know, it's almost like going back to the 70s when people just invested for yield rather than for return. And um, I think, oh, sorry, for capital growth. And so, you know, I think that the high yielding bond is, um, if you can find good, safe ones, I think that's not a bad place to be. But that's, that's a very, very interesting point that people mostly forget or, or aren't aware of. If you look at the 200 the year history of the Anglo-Saxon financial markets, so the UK and the US going back to 200 years, the average return, obviously with huge volatility, but the average annual return from Anglo-Saxon stock markets is about six to seven percent real. But of that six to seven percent, something like four to five comes from dividend dividend being reinvested. So the thing that people you know lose track of during a great bull market for growth stuff is that actually if you're not owning things in the long run that have a dividend yield, you're playing the wrong game. Well, exactly. So. And in fact, the FTSE 100, not the FTSE 250, so I, mean, I like the FTSE 250, but the FTSE 100, which is not really Britain. It's a global index, basically. Yeah, it's not, a you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of quite high yielding stuff on there. So that's, that's not that's not a bad place to park capital, I wouldn't have thought. Um, so that's one area. Um, I am... Still can't decide if we're in another secular bull market for commodities or not. But I just think you have to have some exposure to energy, oil and gas, because, you know, they just has not been the investment. And so and we need it. And even with net zero and all the rest of it, oil and gas consumption is going to and coal as well. Fossil fuel consumption will increase. Well, I'd say especially especially because of net zero, because net zero is ultimately unworkable. Well, that too. And but, you know, we need to burn a lot of fossil fuel in order to achieve net zero. But, you know, we've just got more and more people entering the middle class from around the world. And, and 
you know, they want to heat their homes and do all the things that we do. So um, I, I'm pretty sure you need an allocation to energy. And but I'm, I can't make my mind up against metals because, you, you know, normally the two go hand in hand. But metals have been so crap the last eight months. Well, gold's, uh, gold and silver are moving at the moment. They're moving at the moment, but, you know, they've been crap since March, really. Yeah. The, the well, thing, I yeah, mean, it, I, the, the dollar's really, been strong, though, hasn't this it? This is a really yeah. interesting, this is a really interesting point, because if you look at a chart of gold or silver, for example, in dollars, they basically ended the year the same place they started. They had a great, a very strong Q1, and then it's been a disaster since then. However, if you just look look exclusively at, say, the gold market, the physical gold market, what then transpires is, I think the FT covered this about a week ago, Central banks bought more gold last year than at any year since, I think, 1967. So all I'm generally suggesting is that the, the whole price of these metals has been grossly manipulated because I think the BIS revealed they'd bought 50 tons of gold quite recently. And you think, well, that's a bit odd because the, the, the price has come down. But maybe these guys are just simply so grotesquely immoral that they're more than happy to play games with the the, the bullion banks to drive prices lower while they're accumulating and then let it let it pop afterwards. So I think there's huge shenanigans going on in the pressure metals market and t taking the price at, 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 on trust is just not I, I, everything's being manipulated. It's not just it's not just the, the precious metals, but there's specific manipulation going on. And we know this is the case because every so often JP Morgan gets another you know, multi-million dollar fine from the regulators and they just get a slap on the wrist and then it's, they start doing it all over again. Yeah, I mean, I was talking as much about base metals as I was precious metals, you know. Um, and obviously, that's that's just a special focus of ours. But I think that it, it, I don't know which is easier to manipulate. But I'm just thinking it, it's 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 so difficult now because you you can't really trust the price of anything in isolation. Well, yes, I don't. I'm not sure. I mean, I think. Base metals are probably manipulated to the extent that people who are operating in the market are playing games. Hmm. But I, I don't know if there's actual government um, intervention. But the what I would say about gold specifically is that, you, like China redeclared its gold holdings and it announced like another thirty tons or something minuscule, and. China has probably 10 times more gold than it says it does. And mm. I've done loads of work on this on my on Substack. I've, I've researched it probably more than anyone else, except maybe Jan Nieuwenhaus. And um, it just has, if you just look at the gold that China's mined, you look at the gold that China's imported, and you just assume that 50% that of it has gone into private hands and 50% of it's gone into state hands, given that all the Chinese mining companies are state-owned or mm. well over 50% of them, you just know that China's got way more gold than it says it does. And we also know that that Shanghai Cooperative Organization, which is basically every country, Russia to the north, China um, to the east, Iran to the west and India to the south and every country in between except for a couple. So the largest um, sort of economic area on earth, 40% of the world's land surface or something, wants to de-dollarize. And, you know, a lot of those countries are run by people pretty unsavory. Um, and Erdogan is trying to join them, Turkey. And you just look at 
the reason they 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 still use the US, US dollar is because it's it's the best thing in a bad bunch. They sort of still vaguely trust it, and they they can't use any other currencies. And they're desperately trying to. This guy Sergey Glaziev is trying to design new some new system, but you know, de-dollarization of that area is a big theme, mm. and you know he, they keep talking about commodity-backed currency and this and that, but we just know that there's a big road there that leads to gold, a big road. And in fact, China could just, you know, if China wanted to collapse the US dollar, it should just declare what its gold holdings actually are. Mm. I just don't think China's ready to do that yet. Well, maybe they just haven't finished accumulating yet. Well, exactly. Um, so, and, you know, for China to declare 20,000 tons, twice as much gold, two or three times as much gold as the United States, 8,000 tons, um, you know, it's pretty tantamount to a declaration of war. But anyway, I, in addition to having high-yielding bonds and energy, I, I recommend an allocation to gold and silver. I mean, silver's uh, going to disappoint again this year because it always does. Um, but, you know, there are moments when silver shines. But, yeah, base metals I'm, I'm in two minds about, but they they seem to have flattened out. They sort of, sort of crashed, and then they've just gone sideways. And when a market goes sideways for a long time, it's sort of building cores. And so, you know, there's a lot of reasons why base metals could have a good 2023. You know, China coming back online, uh, governments trying to stimulate their economies, infrastructure projects and all the rest of it. Um, lack of investment for since probably... 10 years. So I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about metals generally, but I, I think you should still have an allocation. Silver's really underperformed over the past, you know, say 10 years. It's got, um, it, I mean, it didn't touch its high of $50, which was hit in 2011, whereas gold got closer to it. It does look like the spread... Gold went above. Pardon? Gold went above. Gold yes, went, exactly. it's, I was 1920 and gold went to whatever it was, 2100. Exactly. So there's a big catch-up play in silver to be had. Um, I think everything you said is absolutely kind of spot on for what where we're headed. Um, the, I think one of the interesting things, I don't know what you think about this, is the if you've been looking at the CPI numbers that have been coming out of um, the US, which are leading the markets completely, they are, they, it was some very hot numbers, but they've been coming in weaker and weaker. And I think they're just going to manipulate that down. Um, or it will naturally fall anyway, because part of it was food and energy. But it will, when it gets to a certain price level, which I think will be around potentially six, 6%, just over 5%, with US 10 year yields around, settling around, say, 4 to 5%. And they'll just like happily hum along with that situation, inflating away their debt. So I think this is pretty much what they want. And obviously that's um, that's reducing the purchasing power of everybody's cash. So buying precious metals and indeed base metals would, would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, turning to tech, you asked about Bitcoin. Yes, I indeed. Well, that the currency that you said that they might turn to instead of the US dollar, you said gold, but could it be Bitcoin? Well, it would make a lot of sense. 
because the problem that all those countries have got is trust. And that's the problem with using one of those nations fiat currencies is the lack of transparency and the lack of trust. So you go, well, then they could use gold, but they've still got the custody issue. You know, who's the third party that's looking after the gold? Who do they, who do they, you know, so that's an issue and they haven't solved it. But, you know, if only there was a, a digital immediate settlement, <laughs> trustless system of money and there is, and we know that China's, um, Russia's using now using some of its excess energy to mine Bitcoin. Um, so I didn't, I didn't actually know that. That's it. That's interesting. Yeah. A few years ago, a few months ago, that was a thing that came out. Um, so, and China's got loads. Um, so it's possible and it's, it would make sense. Um, because it would sort out the third party issue. But I just still struggle to think that governments are actually going to use um, Bitcoin because I don't know. Well, this is the, they, they, lose, they lose control over the, the control they would otherwise have by using their own fiat. So yeah, isn't, but then is, they Yeah, I mean, it isn't one issue that ultimately they just reshore the custody so that they keep the custody in their own, in their own, in their own region. Yeah, but okay, so let's say... Um, uh, India wants to buy Russian gas and Iran wants to buy Indian uh, steel and uh, uh, China wants to buy Iranian oil, you know, whatever it is. How do they, how do they, what's the payment system? Because at the moment they're still using dollars. Mm. Well, they could, they could pay in physical gold. I mean, I know it's cumbersome. Yeah, but how but do they get it from, how does, where does, what are they just sending it around on trucks, on planes? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, again, it's, it sounds like a sort of a grotesquely antiquated way of doing it. But if all I'm saying is if I were a central banker in any one of those current, uh, any one of those countries, I would not want to relinquish control over, over my own sovereign currency. How so, about promissory notes that are based upon the gold? Yeah, but who's the who's the, who enforces them? Who's the trusted third yeah. party? No, I mean, it, I was, it was a tongue in cheek. Um, oh, I see. So, Sorry. So, no, no, no. But it was it, obviously that's how money started, wasn't it? It was the, the, the yeah. yeah. So it's almost like we're going back to being forced to go back to the beginning, which is which is right, really. Um, there is there is certainly a, an argument that's been made by a, a number of economists, which is that the current the current environment is anomalous in the history of finance, which is having a currency system that's not backed by anything. For for se for several centuries, if not millennia, they've been backed by precious metals. Yeah, well, what what happened? It could yet happen. That could yet happen in the future as well. Gold, the once and future money, in the title of the book. Yeah, uh, the my argument is, and it's, I mean, you know, it's an argument that appeals to gold bugs, and I am a gold bug, but it's also, um, you know, like a lot of pro gold arguments, very persuasive, but ultimately unrealistic. But every single reserve currency in the world in history from you know ancient greece to to lydia to to rome to whatever started out backed by gold they they ended not backed by gold in most cases you know you think of roman money and the pound and the dollar but they started out gold backed and we always hear how china you know if you want, want to understand china china wants to be top of the world that is China's rightful place. And they're quite, you know, arrogant, proud, all the rest of it. And part of being top of the world means 
their money has to be the global money. And if they are to achieve that status for the yuan, they're going to have to back it and it's going to have to be transparent and they're going to have to honor their backing and all the rest of it. And that's going to involve gold. So, you know, that's a very, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's a strong reason to own some gold. There's a, there's a fascinating element to this, which is, I was talking about it with a client a few days ago, that this idea that China gets old before it ever gets rich, that they've basically nuked their own demographics by having the, the one-child policy for so long and that the Chinese population is going into reverse. It's going to, it's going to turn into a, like a larger version of Japan. Well, it's possible, but I'm, I'm a big pro-Japan guy. <laughs> I think Japan's done a lot of things well. And 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 then, funnily enough, we've come to living long, working longer. So I don't think it's, it's that that demographic thing is as big a problem. And, and Japan, funnily, as we make out, although it is a problem in China because of the one child. And funnily enough, we've come full circle because one way that the Japanese can deal with their their population problem is through AI and robotics. Well, yes, exactly, exactly. So, um, but yeah, coming back to Bitcoin, you know, it's crypto winter. Mm. There's no ice, ice age i would say yeah but you know bitcoin's still sixteen thousand dollars yes exactly and and it's basically went down you know it, it had its speculative excess um you know there's four phases to a to a bitcoin cycle I, again this is something i've written about on my Substack. so it'd be quiet accumulation bull market blow off top collapse and then uh, and then sideways. Yes. And even with all the bad news that's happened, the FTX and all the rest of it, Bitcoin's still sixteen thousand dollars. And um, in many ways, that shows its strength. And with all, with a, in a world of de-dollarization, the case for Bitcoin got stronger. In a world of low rates and all the growth stuff we talked about uh, at the top of the show, rather high rates and and lack of internet speculative capital. The case for Bitcoin has got weaker. You know, the, the case for all tech is not as strong as it was. But um, so, again, I just think everyone should have an allocation to Bitcoin. And yeah, Bitcoin could go to 12,000. There's some support, support there. It might go to 9,000. But you never, you never know, it might go to 30,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 again. Um, it doesn't take long for these bull market cycles to get going and for sentiment to turn. And I know there are some people that hate Bitcoin, some people that love it, but, you know, its potential, even at $16,000, is so enormous. But I think one should have some allocation to it. What about Ethereum, which did not cross its 2022 low um, and has been relatively much stronger? It's sort of the equivalent of gold and silver. Um, In a way, differential. Um, what I like about Bitcoin and Ethereum is when you go to like a mining conference you know there are some clever guys at mining but you know the typical board of a gold mining company does not have the same it's, it's not high iqville let's put it that way and when you're investing in bitcoin and ethereum you are effectively buying exposure to the combined IQ of that space. And Bitcoin and Ethereum are full of geniuses. 
You know, there are loads of people with 140, 150 plus IQs, you know, seriously clever computer programmers and so on that in a way that that just dwarfs what you might find in gold mining. Long term capital management, a lot of PhDs as well. though. Well, I know, I know. Um, but, you know, Vladimir Buterin is a seriously bright guy. And I, I talk to some people and they tell me that Ethereum's going to zero and proof of stake doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. And then you talk to other people and you who um, just describe its extraordinary potential. And I just think have a small allocation. Well, after the tech crash, everybody said tech was going to go to zero as well. So there's there's plenty of plenty of zero predictions. And like you say, never say never. But it's it seems like it's holding up particularly well, given all the bad news and the bad sentiment. And your comment about this accumulation phase seems to be going on right now. And given that everything else has rallied and the dollar's weakening and interest rates seems to be coming off and long term rates coming off a bit, um, there, there is some scope for risk on plays and piling into or getting in getting back into it at this phase doesn't it doesn't feel like it's a high let's put it this way but you're you're right it it could go lower because who knows whatever uh, there may be more shoes to drop as it were but um it's so far performing quite well and i think that's really interesting i haven't written my new year predictions piece yet Ah. one of the things i'm going to say is bitcoin has a good year Yes. Okay. Interesting. So I know we're a bit short on time and we want to get onto kisses on a postcard, but do you have any other strong predictions um, that, uh, that you wanted to tell us about for this year? Um, well, no, cause we, we've sort of talked about everything I was going to talk about. And um, so, you know, I'm ambivalent about metals. I'm pro energy. I'm pro if you can get a good yield and it's safe, I'm pro that. And I, I think Bitcoin will be all right. I think this de-dollarization and the, the rise of this Shanghai cooperation organization in Asia is a is a big theme. Chat GBT is extraordinary and its its potential is just enormous. And I recommend everyone goes and plays with it because, you know, if I'm just like tinkering with it, 10, 15 minutes a day and going, write me a song, Dominic Frisbee, you can rest assured there are people who are out there. Like I know coders are using it Yes, to write code, really, really difficult code. And it's just writing it really, really quickly. So I, you, you have to start getting excited about tech again because of chat GBT. Um, I don't know where it goes, but, but well, I one, one last, one last question in relation to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency generally, does, does crypto and Bitcoin offer a potential way of escape from the looming central bank digital currency? Um, well, John Matonis used to call it the on-ramp. He said CBTs are the, CBDCs are the on-ramp to Bitcoin. And uh, it, for those of our listeners that are English and don't know what an on-ramp is, we would say the slip road. So it's the road that you take when you're going onto the motorway. And he thinks that CBDCs will normalize cryptocurrencies and thus uh, um, increase their use and increase uh, their market participation. So ultimately, they're bullish for it. Right. So it will. So what you're saying is it will be a positive. That's that's yeah. a, that's a very interesting take. I've not heard that one before. Yeah. Well, it just you know suddenly everyone's going to have their wallet on their phone, and they're like, well, I have a Bitcoin wallet as well. 
Why not? <laughs> yeah. You probably won't be able to use CBDCs to buy Bitcoin, but anyway, they'll 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 put that in the program. I've got another song I'm working on, by the way, called Programmable Money. That's going to be very good. Well, this is the thing. We were talking about this at the top of the show, weren't we? That you were saying it's very difficult to to write um, a kind of... Well, you can't be pigeonholed because you do so many things. And, um, you know, ChatGPT said there's no topic that Dominic can't handle. So you're an actor. <laughs> you're an actor. You know, you're writing songs. Um, you, you know, you, you know more than most financial experts about the financial markets. You've written books on tax. You've been, you've written uh, one of the, the, the most widely read books on Bitcoin, you know, and then you've, you've also been working with uh on a new project or it's just come to fruition kisses on a postcard before we we talk about that how do you find the time to do all of this because you you do stand-up comedy as well so it's quite phenomenal well i like work and i only do things that i like doing well unless i've paid fortunes and and so you know my work is my play i guess and i write a lot of lists and lists keep me organized um, but the the I only actually became a financial writer because I was trying to work out how to raise the five million quid we needed to put kisses on a postcard on back in the noughties. And um, so kisses on a postcard is a musical that my dad. It's a, a story that my dad wrote that started out as a radio play and then it became uh it was optioned to be a film by Ken Loach in the 90s, but the film never got made. It got stuck in development hell. And then um, his friend had been nagging him to turn it into a musical, which he did with another friend of his. And they put it on in in um, in a sort of community theatre project in North Devon in 2003. And I just fell head over heels in love with it. I'd always like always liked the story anyway from the original radio play. And my dad, by the way, was quite a well-known, quite successful writer called Terence Frisbee. His play, There's a Girl in My Suit, was the longest running comedy in the history of the West End at one point. It's since been overtaken. Um, but it ran for six years in at the Globe in um, uh, uh, Shaftesbury Avenue. Then it's now called the Gilgood. Anyway, so um, we were trying to raise the money to put, bring this into the West End, and then we couldn't. And then Dad's friend had written the music. Gordon Clyde died, and then Dad got these other guys in to write the music, and they wrote the good stuff, and it was put on again in Barnstable in 2013. And and but it was just this project this wonderful wonderful story that i had to it was my life's mission to to get this thing on and i regard this as the best thing i've ever done and the most important thing i've ever done and we when dad died in in 2020 right at the beginning of the lockdown and i was cleaning out stuff and i found the script and i found the cd and i put it i've got a sort of little shelf on my desk and I put it on there and I thought, I'll deal with that later. And then every day in the lockdown, I'd look up and there was this script and this CD looking at me. And I was going, I've got to do something with this. And I can't turn it into a film because it would cost millions and millions of pounds. But not only that, you know, if you're going to get something successfully made as a film, it's one thing making it, but it's another marketing it. You need powerful allies and distributors and all this. And I just don't have those. I don't know those people. I'm not in that world. And then it was obviously lockdown, so I couldn't do a live version of it, a West End show. And in any case, you do a show. And then as soon as the curtain comes down on the last night, it's history. 
But I've worked all my life in voiceovers in sound studios. And I thought to myself, well, I can turn this into an audio project. So I began working on an audio adaptation of it. And the beauty of uploading stuff to the Internet is once it's uploaded, it's there permanently. And so that's what we did with Kisses on a Postcard. And the guy who I write, my, we took the songs and we rewrote a lot of the songs, me and my friend who I write the songs with, and I adapted it. And there were loads of big stars from musical theatre who were available because it was a lockdown. And we, by a curious chain of circumstances, we ended up recording probably two thirds of it at Abbey Road uh, with a 15 piece orchestra in Abbey Road. And, you know, for those of you, that's where the Beatles recorded all their stuff. It's probably the most famous studio in the world. How, how did you afford that? That must have cost a, a, an amazing amount of money. Well, it, it cost a lot of money. And I've, I've, I've spent a fortune on this. Mm. And I'll lose money on it. And I don't care. But, it, but the, the production is just unbelievable. Thank you. I mean, it I mean, really I'm, is. I'm it's, proud of it. And, but the, the way we got Abbey Road is that the um, uh, we... We were supposed to do it in this other studio and the person was breaking my balls about COVID and everyone had to be two metres apart and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, we can't do this. We've got a cast of 50 and a 15-piece orchestra. We can't do it. And everyone's had their, going to do their tests and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, no, no, no. And she was just breaking my balls. And, you know, dealing with all that COVID stuff, you need deep pockets. This is why it's really difficult for small businesses to compete with big businesses because the big businesses can shoulder the cost of regulation. Small businesses can't. So anyway, I phoned up all the other studios try to find a, trying to find a place last minute. And Abbey Road had just had a dropout because, ironically, the conductor had to go into quarantine for two weeks because <laughs> wow. he had COVID. <laughs> so Abbey Road just gave it to us at cost. So it still cost me a lot of money, but it, I didn't have to pay top, top dollar. So that's how we ended up recording Abbey Road. And it's basically the story is... What I'll do is, is I'll tell you a little story and then maybe we can end the podcast on this song. Um, the story is, it tells the story of my dad who was seven and his brother Jack was 11. They were both vackies. They were both evacuated from their family in southeast London in 1940 to escape the German bombs, the, the oncoming Battle of Britain, shortly after the last soldiers left Dunkirk. And it was the biggest mass movement of people in our country's history, something like four million kids were evacuated from cities to the countryside. No, they were separated from their parents. They didn't know where they were going, how long they'd be going for, who would be taking them in. And my mum, my grandma, in order to turn it into an adventure for my dad and his brother, invented this secret code for them. And you were to put one kiss on the card uh, uh, she wrote a postcard for them and it said, dear mum and dad arrive safe and well, love Jack and Terry. And they were to write the address of where they ended up. And this was the secret code. They would put one kiss if it was horrible and granny would come straight back and get them. They would put two kisses if it was okay. And they would th three kisses if it was nice. I mean, you can imagine the wrench for these families at the oh, time. God, they, yeah. It's just extraordinary. And anyway, mum, uh, I keep saying mum, granny, my nan walked, um, my uncle and my dad down to Deptford Station, put them on a train uh, along with the rest of their school, waved goodbye and just watched this train disappear into the distance. And they spent, they went, the, the train went all the way across London, from Deptford across London, through the West Country, through Surrey and then Wiltshire and the West Country, Dorset, and then ended up in Cornwall. 
in Liscard and then they were put on a bus and they were driven 10 miles on the bus or whatever to a little town called um, to a little village called Dobwalls and they were herded into the village hall and the kids were all there 50 of them made to stand in the center of the village hall where they were picked out by the locals um, and um, my dad and his brother you know like cattle and the expression was I'll take that one there mm. that was the expression that did the rounds of the country no checks nothing Bloody and hell. dad and his brother were picked up um, by this Welsh couple who'd moved down to Cornwall. He'd been a soldier in World War One. Now he was a, a coal miner and now he was a plate layer on the Great Western Railway. And they were taken back um, to, to their house, a little railway cottage. At the end of the garden um, was the railway line, the main line from London to Penzance. Um, they went in the house. They had this funny son called Gwyn, who was a soldier just going off to war himself. Um, and Gwyn would eventually die later in the show. You, the show tells the story of the whole of um, World War II through the eyes of dad and his brother in this little Cornish village. Um, but anyway, they were taken into this house and there was there was no electricity. There were just oil lamps. There was a cat asleep by the hearth. There was a canary in a coal mine. In the back garden, there was a pig and some chickens. Outside, as well as the railway, there were woods to explore, a coombe, uh, rivers to dam, all this stuff. And dad and his brother thought they'd died and gone to heaven. They absolutely loved it. And this song that I'm about to play you takes place on their first night. There's a, This is 20 minutes into the show. You've got another four hours after this. <laughs> but it's, And you can, you can get the show for free at kissesonapostcard.com. You can order CDs there if you want a CD, or you can get it for free as a podcast. Kissesonapostcard.com, Apple Podcasts, whatever. And... Um, this first song is the two boys, Jack and Terry, on their first night deciding how many kisses to put on their card. It's late at night. They're just sitting there in their bedroom lit by candles and they're discussing how many kisses to put on their card. How many kisses? I vote three. What would mum and dad think of it here? Don't know. No electricity. They wouldn't like that. I don't care. There's no bathroom. I don't care. <laughs> Outside love, all they have I can't go in an outside love I don't mind, I don't care What if it's freezing cold out there? That's what the pot's for, don't you see? I vote one, I vote three Just one bed, got to share All squashed up in it, I don't care Kisses on a postcard, we must write Eggs for you, eggs for me, eggs for breakfast, up and tea. 
Mum only said up to three. But don't you see, the more kisses we put, the more happy they're going to be. Yeah, it's terrific here really, isn't it? Like being on holiday, only there's no sea. We don't have to stop at four. Let's do hundreds. Yeah. asleep and they've covered the card in kisses night night boys thanks everybody wishing you a happy and prosperous 2023 this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor